Hello, my name is Amber Schmitke, and I am a public health microbiologist and science writer during the COVID pandemic. I was a, an assistant professor last year at Mercer University School of Medicine in Macon, Georgia, where I was sort of the infectious disease instructor for the first and second year medical students. There were several of us, but when it came time for the pandemic, I was the one with the most experience in public health. And so I had a lot of students and a lot of faculty and staff coming to me with questions. And so, you know, it started out as, oh my goodness, I've got a lot of people panicking. And I've always found that, you know, people are most afraid of the things they don't understand. And we can really sort of take away a lot of that anxiety if we can better understand what's happening. And so it kind of started in that way. I gave a big seminar to the entire student body, the administration of the university, et cetera. And like three days later, they decided to close the campus. <laughs> so I guess it meant something. From there, that's really when I started collecting data. I just checked because I figured you would ask. It was March 11th that I started keeping track of the data for Georgia and I started writing about it uh, first with my Facebook page, and then I started a newsletter because there's a lot of people that don't like social media. And that kind of outgrew my original platform, went to a different one, and it's kind of taken off from there. So how did you make data, data analysis part of your public communication? How important was so, it for you that that be the focus? So I think that as you know, from your work too, like this is the public's data, right? But a lot of the public can't access that information either because they don't know how to find it or they don't know how to read it. And so really it kind of married my two roles, having worked at the CDC before and in public health and being an educator, especially to non-scientists, how do I make the data that is already available to the public, something that they can access and understand. And so really I view this more as teaching. And, and of course there's data analysis along the way, but a, a lot of my writing has to do with, okay, here's how this graph works. And you think you come up with your own conclusion and I'll catch up with you in just a second and tell you what I saw. Um, and so there is sort of that opportunity for them to make their own conclusions. And I think that's important because what this pandemic has really shown, I think a lot of us, is the importance of making evidence-based decisions. Um, and I think a lot of people haven't really looked at these kinds of graphs ever or you know, versions of them, maybe was like high school or college, but public health data in particular is not your average graph. And so you know, there's nuance to it in terms of reporting delays and incubation periods and things like that that um, take a little bit more you know, coaching to understand. It is difficult because it's nuanced and it's health information that people will have really never confronted before. And it's of more data than the average person has probably ever consumed in their life. And to try to, but it's a very difficult job and it's a balancing act. And once you start doing this, it's not just about your data and the way that you present it. It's also about you people will challenge you and smear you and hopefully not raid you, but <laughs> it, it's not out of the realm of possibility as unfortunately we've all learned. Um, so what are some of the challenges that you face as an individual doing this kind of work? You know, the disinformation thing has been really hard. Um, you know, I think what people don't tend to realize is that, you know, I don't make a lot of money doing this. Um, you know, the, the newsletter has a paid model. It's kind of like an NPR model. People who choose to contribute do, but nobody has to. It's a free newsletter. Um, and, 
you know, when you have people that are, you know, accusing you of things, you're sort of like, why am I doing this? You know, and, and there have been circumstances where I've gotten hate mail, um, death threats, um, those sorts of things. And, um, you know, to the point where, you know, around Christmas time, I had a lot of readers that were like, I would like to send you a gift of appreciation. And I'm like, I cannot give you my mailing address. Um, and so, and, and not because I don't value what you're trying to do, but if you would just take um, that gift that you were planning to give to me and donate it to, to a charity in my honor, it would mean so much to me. Um, and I hate that that's the way things are right now. Um, I hate how political this pandemic became, how it became an us versus them um, sort of situation where, you know, this virus really doesn't care what your political leanings are or, um, you know, your comfort level with science. Um, and, and I think that it's been it's been frustrating to to know the what we've been up against in the sense of people that just for whatever reason um, are threatened by science and don't want the public to understand and so they try to muddy the water. Um, when I feel like a lot of the time the information that you know people like me, people like you are trying to convey is life saving information so that people can make an informed choice about the continuum of risk. Um, so I balance that with the fact that I, I certainly get a lot of appreciation and I'm grateful for that. And, um, you know, I, I know that uh, the work that I've done has meant a lot to a lot of people. Um, and so that's certainly what keeps me going. Um, but, you know, I, just like anybody, I'm ready for this pandemic to be over. <laughs> yeah, um, that brings me to my um, next question. How exhausted are you right now? <laughs> <laughs> um I am tired. And I, I talked about this with my husband the other day. I'm, I'm, I'm burned out. Um, and I think a lot of us are, you know, I have enjoyed some of the notoriety that has come with this line of work, but I'm generally a pretty private person. And um, it, it will be nice to fade into the background a little bit more. Um, so there's that. But then also, I'm, you know, I, I hate that I have this sort of Pavlovian sort of response that I need to be by a computer every day at 3 p.m., um, because that's when Georgia uh, does their data upload, um, you know, and so, you know, it's, it's just sort of railroads your life a little bit. Um, these are minor things. I mean, if it's a question of life or death and knowing that, you know, the state of Georgia depends on this information or the citizens of Georgia depend on this, it's well worth the effort. But, you know, just like everybody. Yeah, I'm tired. I ask everybody that question and it's interesting to see everybody's responses. And I think you probably had the least exhausted characterization of it so far. <laughs> so whatever you're on, um, let me know so that I can find that as well. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, you know, I will say I got vaccinated last week and that was a very needed shot in the arm, uh, both in terms of, you know, of course, countering the virus, but also just, it was an incredible um, transition of hope that came from that and like, okay, this really is almost over. And I had that feeling when the vaccine first came out and we started seeing the healthcare workers getting vaccinated and it was a very emotional experience. You're just sort of like, oh my gosh, we really are seeing the beginning of the end. And so that provides a lot of hope. And, you know, I got lucky. I was one of those people that got a leftover dose at the end of a vaccine clinic when they were going to throw it away anyway. So I still got to figure out getting my second dose. But, you know, I think that that has that has certainly lifted my spirits and kept me going. So about the leftover vaccines at clinics every day, how exactly is that happening? Is it legal? 
And if people want to find out if it is legal, how to do that, how, where would they go for information? You know, I'm not totally sure that there is a central clearinghouse for that kind of information on a state or even county level. I got really lucky in that one of the volunteers that was working at the clinic that day um, happened to know me. And at the end of the day, they were like, call whoever you can, who can be here in the next 15, 20 minutes. And I happen to live less than half a mile away. So I think that that's really all this was, but I don't think that it should be dumb luck, you know, like this. I think there should be a standby list so that when a situation like that arises, then they know who to call and those people can be there. The last thing we want is for any of these precious doses to end up in a garbage can. So how, how would that, is it because they take them out of their cold storage that they would end up in a garbage can? Why not just put them back? So it's a good question. So what happens is, yes, they have to thaw the doses in advance. One of the manufacturers requires mixing. Um, the other doesn't. It, it comes already in its liquid form. But once they puncture the vial, um, they have to administer everything in that vial within six hours. And so because they're multi-dose vials, they'll puncture them for X number of people. And then there's extra volume left in at the end. And so, you know, if you have no shows or you have, you know, you didn't, you were just doing it on a walk-in basis and you didn't have quite as many people as you were expecting. I think that's how they end up in that situation. But yes, they do have a shelf life. So they can't just go back in the fridge once they've been opened. Okay. Yeah. Because you hear a lot about that and it seems, you know, like I've read a story about how they were supposed to flash their lights in the parking garage or something if they had vaccines. And it, it just sounded absolutely insane to me, but it's good to know that there are mechanisms in place for people to get the vaccine that would just otherwise be trashed, literally be trashed. Well, I hope so. Like I said, mine was a, a freak thing. I'm hopeful that, you know, there is some foresight there that, you know, there's a standby list for different health departments or uh, healthcare facilities that they have people ready to go in that case. So, all right. So what are your plans for and quote after COVID? Oh man. Um, <laughs> It, it, you know, it's, it's crazy because for a long time, I haven't let myself think about it uh, because, you know, you just, you can get kind of sad and depressed about where you're at right now um, in terms of how life just feels so abbreviated. Uh, but I'm going to go see every single member of my family <laughs> when everybody's vaccinated. Um, I have uh, really taken for granted how easy it was prior to the pandemic to go see family and I'm done making excuses, realizing from this pandemic, how short life can be. So that will be one thing for sure. And I hope very much that we're going to be traveling a lot more. Uh, we're an RVing family. Um, and that has been something you can still do during a pandemic pretty well, but um, it has impacted even that. And so we're, we're looking forward to um, getting out of our house. That's for sure. I think everybody's tired of sheltering in place or trying to remain socially distant. And I just want to just go hug all the people. Yeah. I think a lot of hugs are in order for sure. It seems like we've realized through this pandemic, just how important, you know, consistent social interaction can be. And yeah. we've been, not obviously the ones of us that adhere to the recommendations haven't been doing that. I look forward to many, many hugs. I've had a rough year. I need hugs. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you have. <laughs> we all have though. I mean, 
apart from one or two aspects. I haven't had it any harder than anybody else just trying to keep up with information and deliver it to the public. And I want to go back to something you said earlier about the public owning the data. Mm -hmm. Can you describe your philosophy on that a little bit? Sure. So having worked at the CDC before, you know, I I guess I was sort of raised in that culture that public health data is meant to be public. Um, And but there's also a, a responsibility that comes with that, with making sure that we are providing accurate information to the public in a timely manner. And so and and because they're paying for it and this is information that they need on a community level, on an individual level to make safe decisions. And so there's the data that I pull from is mainly from the Georgia Department of Public Health, um, but I also tie in data from the Department of Health and Human Services at the federal level and CDC. And so, you know, people will say things like, I really trust her data. And I'm like, but really it's public data. (laughs) I'm just Uh, You know, for a long time, what Georgia was doing was they would give you snapshots each day, but there was no context over time. And so all I was doing was really graphing the data that they provided each day over time to show where the trends were. And so, again, there's there's sort of this fangirl situation going on, and I'm flattered by it, where people are like, oh, but she's the best. And I'm like, really, I'm just showing you the data you already have, but it might not make sense in its current form. And so to that end, I've worked with state agencies. I was actually part of a state COVID data task force for a time this last summer. In terms of packaging the information, especially geospatial information, in a way that would be more meaningful and accessible to the public. And so I was sort of the the wordsmith, so to speak, in terms of writing all of their explanations, all of their captions, making sure that everything was very intuitive and easy to use, knowing that we had a wide spectrum of scientific background or no science background at all among the population. And so how do we make this accessible to lay people as well? I I mean, I agree with that philosophy. It's one of the things I really butted heads with uh, state leadership with the DOH is that the public has a right to know. And Mm -hmm. In academia, especially, I've noticed that there, at least in climate and environmental sciences, there's a real hesitancy to bother with that, to bother with the burden, really, of trying to communicate with the press and the public about your work. And And, and I think it all stems to that publisher-perish situation, right, where People are like, if I don't publish, then I don't make tenure. I don't get promoted, that sort of thing. And, and so maybe like you, although you were working in public health prior to the pandemic already, right? I was in an academic position. And so when the pandemic started and I was doing some of this data work, I had to kind of make a conscious decision of, well, do I want to do this for publication where the information will get out slower, but it will help me more as a person and, and in my career, or is it more important to communicate what I'm seeing in the trends in real time, you know, like, where can I do the most good? And, and, and by doing that, it may not help me in my career for promotion and tenure and that sort of thing. But in a moment of crisis that we were all in last year and still are, all of us want to help in any way that we can. And you have to sort of have that moment of self-reflection in terms of how do I leverage that to help the most people I can. So that is, that was sort of the decision I made. And it, it's paid off. We received a lot of nominations with a lot of praise. And some of the things that were said, honestly, people do believe that you saved 
not just a lot of lives in the abstract sense, but their lives. I think if several people said, like, I owe this woman my life for informing them. Wow. And, you know, it's not just about, you know, oh, I, you know, tweet out the data now and then. It's about being able to empathize and reach people. And that is often not something that can be taught. It's just kind of a gift some communicators have like you. And so for me, it's honestly an honor to be able to have this time to sit down and speak with you because, I mean, normally I talk a lot more, I'm going to be honest, <laughs> trying to fill in you know, these awkward <laughs> gaps, but I didn't have to because everything that you're saying is inspiring and just, I want to like soak it up and share it with the world. But I, is there anything else you want to say about you and your work and, you know, have the last oh. word like Lawrence would say? <laughs> well, you know, of course, thank you to everybody who took the time to nominate me. I'm honored. Thank you for the opportunity to speak with you today and for consideration for the Data Hero Award. You know, I've done a lot of things in my life, but there's something about having worked in this pandemic that, you know, like we were saying, it may not get me promotion and tenure like a public, a series of publications would have, but it's still some of the most important work that I've ever done. I think everybody who goes into public health, it's a calling. Nobody goes into it to make money, right? <laughs> because there are a lot easier ways to make more money than this. But I think that the calling that we have is that service before self and knowing that, you know, our patient isn't an individual, but an entire community. And all of us in public health, I think, want to save as many lives or provide the best quality of life that we can for those communities. And so I can't see any greater reward um, in my career than having known that I've made an impact in an incredible crisis moment like the pandemic. I've, I've often joked that if I were ever interviewed by NPR, I would just retire because uh, I don't know that I would ever top that. But honestly, I could retire after this pandemic and it would be totally fine and I would feel totally fulfilled having done what I've done here. I, of course, I hope that's not the case. I love teaching and I'd love to go back to that, but it has meant the world to me to be part of this effort. And it's been great having you, honestly. As soon as like submissions started coming in, I was hoping that you would pop up <laughs> and I didn't have to wait very long because I don't submit anybody. That's all you know, publicly done. And uh, it did not take long. And there are many, 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 oh my God, I'm so tired. Um, <laughs> need more coffee. Thank you for everything you've done and for the commitment that you've made to doing this despite all of the potential craziness that comes with it. And um, it's not easy for a lot of people to be public and to do this kind of work day in, day out without fail and to keep this level of energy and optimism really and hope for people. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you.